everyone. Welcome to A Gut Feeling. My name is Jake and I'm joined here today with Dave. As health coaches and educators, we've helped thousands of clients optimize their life by healing their gut. Our aim with this podcast is to provide you with some of those tools. Now, before we get into it, don't forget to check out the show notes for links to our social media profiles. And if you like what we've got to say, go with your gut and give this podcast a follow. Now, let's get into today's show. <laughs> okay, so today's episode is going to be a little bit different. So some of you may not know, but both Dave and I started out as strength coaches, and then we sort of evolved and moved more into the sort of gut side of things, blood work side of things. And our, I don't want to speak for you, Dave, but I'm assuming like both of our original passion was in strength coaching, strength and conditioning. And so we both got an interest, I suppose, in seeing how those two worlds intersect. And something we've noticed over the years is there's not a lot of people talking about how they intersect. How do you train well if you have a gut issue? And we're going to argue in this podcast, not with each other, but together, that, (laughs) that probably... If you have a gut issue, you, you're not going to get the best results training the way other people might train. And there's some stuff you need to consider. We're going to be talking mostly from like a muscle building hypertrophy perspective, but a lot of what we say would be applicable in other contexts as well. I think what I love about this topic is... We might throw in a, some other bits and pieces. Beyond um, hypertrophy? Yeah, like I, I'm probably not going to spend a huge amount of time uh, on some of these other areas but i might mention some other factors as well okay dave's got some stuff up his sleeve so okay (laughs) exciting to i'm yeah this is new for me as well we'll see where this goes but i guess what i what i love about this is i don't think people need a compromise in the sense that what we're going to suggest here isn't oh this is second best if you can't train normally because you've got a gut issue what we're going to suggest here actually i think physiologically is as optimal as you can get And in fact, I think basically everyone should be training this way. And it just so happens that this is going to be best for people with gut issues as well. So that's what- So ultimately what you're saying is that potentially with, you know, because we're going to break this down a little bit more around like aspects around central fatigue. Again, like obviously there's so many things that can impact central fatigue. You You would say some of the major things like sleep deprivation and- acute inflammation and it might be dysbiosis and gut issues and because so many people actually have a lot of these things going on at once and it's very hard to you know these things never taking place that for that reason a lot of people would be better to train obviously the way that we're going to suggest you're also saying on top of that Mm. that it might just be the optimal way of training anyway yeah, which is, I get that that's a big call and there's people who are going to be mad to hear me say that, but based on my understanding of how muscle physiology works, I'm convinced of what we're going to say is actually just how, even if you were healthy and you were living an optimized life, it's how I think you should be training. It's how I train myself. And once again, that's that's in relation to, you know, uh, intensive muscular exercise or hypertrophy training. Yes, okay. exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Although yeah. I do think we could kind of put it in the category of functional hypertrophy in the sense that you're going to get strong doing this as well. Yeah. We're, what we're going to do is we're going to say why, if you've got a gut issue, this is especially important for you in, in the sense that what is going to, what's going to be the limitation here? So what's not going to work for you? And then we're going to give you some alternatives as to what we think will work. So like I said, if you don't have a gut issue, I still think it's worth listening. But if you do have gut issues going on, and we're using gut issue really broadly here, we're talking things like SIBO, dysbiosis, gut permeability or leaky gut, whatever you want to call it. Those are sort of the the general gist of what we're talking about here. We're just going to lump it all together. And once again, we've said this a million times, it's not like you, you don't just sit back and just go, well, I don't have gut symptoms, so then I don't have a gut issue. Okay, exactly. like, we, we always say this, most gastrointestinal problems are not necessarily going to manifest with gastrointestinal symptoms. Yeah. yeah. I don't really want people sitting back and just going, well, it doesn't apply to me, yeah. but then they've got depression, they've got anxiety, they've got nervousness, they've got polycystic ovaries, got uh, endometriosis, and like yeah. all those things have a link with uh, gastrointestinal complications. Yeah, exactly. And I'm sure we've talked about that in other podcast episodes. Let's jump in. 
I'll jump in here. Should we start with just aspects around like, you know, lactate clearance and, you know, there's different forms of lactate. It's probably a, a good place to start, I would say. So we're talking okay. about metabolic waste products here. Yes. You've got L-lactate, which you essentially get from muscle tissue breakdown. Um, going to break that down a little bit more. Uh, and then you get D-lactate and D-lactate, you're going to get that from bacteria. And so a lot of people don't realize this. And we obviously we, we've spoken about this in the past. Um, you know, lactic acid is a byproduct that you actually get from bacteria. So yes, muscle tissue breakdown, but you get it from bacteria. And lactic acid is not the devil. It's fuel for the intestinal cells. It's obviously benefits here. Um, but we're sort of posing some of the potential issues that yep. you just got to bear in mind and maybe some better ways of tra training to potentially you know, minimize it or help to deal with it. So, um, so Dave, let's say, who is this going to be an issue for? Because this one is a little bit more specific, right? So who's it going to be an issue yeah. for? What's the relevance there to training? And then we'll give our alternative, okay? So this would, uh, look, if we're talking about like obviously, you know, gut issues, who this is really going to be a, an issue for. So one group would be people with SIBO. Now, we're not going to turn it into a podcast about SIBO. Uh, obviously, it's a gut motility issue. It's a fermentation issue. And so, yes, you could look at the traditional because people go like, how do I know if I've got SIBO? We're not going to talk about like looking at blood markers and all that no. type of stuff. So if you look up SIBO, most of the time you're going to get abdominal distension, abdominal bloating, yeah, you know, constipation, diarrhea, loose stools, uh, flatulence, gas, all, all those things. And I, once again, of course you can get those symptoms when you've got something like SIBO, but mm. I would generally say most common symptom would be lethargy, fatigue, malaise, no, so you just flatline. So, but obviously there's a lot more to it than that. So that would be one group. And the other group is negative gram bacteria. And this is where it also, there's a bit of overlap because a lot of the time with SIBO, uh, predominantly SIBO is made up of negative gram bacteria, especially strains like Klebsiella, that's a broad group, Escherichia coli, E. coli, that's a broad group, Bacteroids, it's a broad group. A lot of the time the SIBO is made up of the negative gram bacteria. So there's some crossover here, but you also, you could just have negative gram bacteria overgrowth in the colon, the large intestine, and obviously you could have H. pylori, which is negative gram bacteria in the stomach lining. There's a bit of overlap here, um, mm. but these, and, and look, you know, symptom-wise, if you think you might have some like, uh, you know, uh, LPS exposure, the LPS is the outer membrane, the negative gram bacteria. You know, we've talked about this, how many things is LPS linked to? Like, yeah, you're going to have uh, yeah, neurological issues. I mean, uh, you can be more prone to pneumonia, urinary tract infections, meningitis. You're more prone to respiratory problems like asthma. Uh, it creates different phenotypes of asthma, phenotype one, phenotype two. I could keep on going on, but I'm not going to. Yep. Okay, so these are, these are, I would say, the two major groups that this is going to be an issue for. So you've got, as I said, you've got uh, L-lactate, you've got D-lactate. Now, most of the time people would say, well, they're separate. There's not going to be any sort of like connection here. Uh, the one thing I do want to say with something like SIBO, because SIBO is very complex, and it's also a bit of a mishmash of many different types of bacteria. So it can be the bacteria that normally resides in your oral region. It can be the bacteria that normally resides in your uh, colon, your large intestine. Um, and also it can just be like a higher abundance of like positive gram bacteria, negative gram bacteria. And it also can be uh, beneficial, pathogenic. It's just a mishmash. So I guess where it can get a little bit confusing here is most of the time people go, well, it's L-lactate, it's D-lactate. It's just not going to be any issues because it's sort of separate. And we do actually have enzymes that actually help to clear excess amounts of L-lactate and excess amounts of D-lactate. So for L-lactate, you've got L-lactate dehydrogenase. And for D-lactate, you've got D-lactate dehydrogenase. The one thing I do want to say with like D-lactate dehydrogenase is the body doesn't actually produce a huge amount of that. So what could I actually say is that do we, are we normally producing high amounts of D-lactate? Probably not or we're not meant to. But now that we've got like these bacterial issues and all that type of stuff, there might be an exacerbation of the issues with some like D-lactate. Mm -hmm. And you can get something like D-lactate uh, uh, acidosis. And when you've got something like D-lactate acidosis, you do get things like ataxia, which is like slurred speech, you get spatial awareness issues, neurotoxicities, it's really damaging to the brain, uh, poor motor skills, coordination issues. And actually you look at a lot of the symptoms associated with D-lactate acidosis, very, very similar, a bit of a side note, very, very similar to motor neurons or MND. I'm not saying it is the cause, but very, very similar symptoms. Actually, if you go look at it, they're almost identical, but that's a conversation for another time. So it's 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 a lot harder for us to clear out excess amount of D-lactate. Now where, because SIBO is a bit of a mishmash, 
you can get some bacteria that produces more D-lactate. You can get some bacteria that actually produces maybe small amounts of L-lactate. And you can get some bacteria that actually produces both. And this is what makes it really tricky because, um, and they, they actually did this, uh, and this, this is also relevant to even like uh, LPS and negative gram bacteria. Um, so, uh, you know, I think I was telling you about a, a research uh, paper that I read where they actually did LPS administration. And, and, and a lot of the studies with LPS are human studies. Mm. Uh, like a lot of the time we quote, you know, rat and mice yeah, studies, yeah. And rabbit, or, but actually a lot of the uh, studies with uh, LPS are human studies. And they actually showed that um, the LPS, okay, when it was administered, it actually created uh, lactatemia. People are going to go, what the hell is lactatemia? Now, in layman's terms, it's an increase of lactate within the blood. So it increased the uh, lactate within the blood, but it actually didn't have, it didn't really decrease lactate clearance. Basically means that the lactate production increased, Mm -hmm. but the uh, lactate clearance rate remained unchanged, basically. Um, So I I just thought that was, you know, Mm. really interesting. And then we, we need to understand that this does apply to something like SIBO because a lot of the time, SIBO is predominantly made up of like negative gram yeah, bacteria. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, the, the issue around this also is that let's say your SIBO is made up of more D-lactate producing bacteria. Um, and even if you look at like, if you look at the makeup of something like L-lactate, okay. So what you've got is two pyruvate molecules like glucose and one hydrogen ion molecule. Uh, and basically don't they say, if you get an accumulation of lactic acid, what is sort of making your biceps? So let's say you're doing like high rep bicep curls or whatever that might be. You're doing lactate threshold, you know, uh, lactate power, lactate capacity, whatever that might be. Okay, you're training like lactate energy system, but it's actually the accumulation of the hydrogen ions that is sort of gonna make your bicep, if you're doing high rep bicep curls, whatever that might be, it's making your bicep feel fatigued. Now, what we also need to understand, we'll probably touch on this as well, is that, you know, bacterial issues, uh, especially on something like SIBO, SIBO is a gas exchange issue. So you're getting all these different gases and some of these gases are hydrogen ions, hydrogen sulfide, me. Um, and if you actually look at it, when there's an accumulation of something like hydrogen ions, one of the major symptoms behind that is lethargy, fatigue, malaise, no energy. So the, the other thing I wanted to mention with the um, D-lactate in the absence of D-lactate dehydrogenase, which is an enzyme that helps with the clearance okay, of the D-lactate. Um, and once again, we, we produce small amounts of that. I, I can't give you like concentrations or anything like that, but we do produce small amounts. What the body will do, or basically just the human cells, yeah, is going to convert at the D-lactate uh, into pyruvate. Now, it actually does that through mitochondrial enzymes, okay, the hydroxy acid dehydrogenase. So is that going to create some other issues as well? Mm. Uh, and so my, my, my big thing here is when you've got, you've got excess amount, you could have excess amounts of D-lactate, okay, that's even going to affect your brain. Well, if that's affecting aspects around like coordination, if it's affecting, how's that going to go for even things mm. like uh, the central nervous system? Mm. So we haven't really talked about the exercise component of lactate there yet. So, so someone might be listening to this and being like, well, why does it matter if I've got extra lactate? We need to understand that exercise is, I don't know if you've touched on this, exercise is causing a buildup of, of lactate and hydrogen, which you mentioned, and some other metabolites as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so why is that an issue? Why does it matter if someone's got extra lactate? Like once again, like if, if there's excess amounts of lactate, let's even focus on that. If there's excess amounts of hydrogen ions and hydrogen ions make you feel fatigued. Well, once again, just from an energy perspective, how's that going to go for your training? So well, I think let's come back to the hydrogen piece in a sec because there's there's yeah. quite a lot there. Okay. So I, I, and it's difficult because a lot of these things it's hard to pass out how each individual metabolite is affecting like one piece of the equation, right? So if we look at and uh, and it's really hard with the one thing I'll say with some like SIBO, it's very very hard to understand is there excess is it is it more L lactate is it more D lactate? It's 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 because like SIBO is so different from you could have like thirty people that have SIBO. Okay, sure. and their bacterial makeup is for all thirty of those individuals is different. Yeah, and that's what makes it really, really complex. But what you could say if you're struggling to clear out the excess excess amounts of lactate is that that could really, really show up um, in in terms of like uh, maybe extra like you, you like if you do that type of training, like let's say you did uh, 
high rep training, your more lactate threshold, glycolytic training. And let's say, especially if you're doing like high rep, slow eccentrics, where you're going to accumulate a lot of lactate, you would say that generally the next day, you're going to feel like you've been hit by a mattress. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's going to have some bearing. We can't put measurements on it, really, can we? Um, Because you would say if someone trains, uh, when it comes to like lactate clearance, like, because obviously, you know, and I think we've spoken about this in depth, that people talk about, like, you might use things like passive recovery and active recovery to yeah, try and help with yeah. them. But really the lactate really clearance is, 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 is pretty similar for yeah. the high majority of people. Now, yeah. our point uh, would be that it's actually probably these types of things like bacterial issues that yeah. are, could be potentially impeding on that the most. Yeah. So let's just bring it back as in ground a little bit because it's probably got a little bit um, scientific. So in a nutshell, what we're saying up until this point is SIBO, bacterial issues, dysbiosis, the, the excess of certain types of bacteria are going to cause extra metabolites in your system. And then what we're saying is exercise, and we're talking about weight training in this instance, and especially higher repetition work is also going to cause excess metabolites in your system. And even within that session, that's actually going to cause a type of central nervous system fatigue. And this is like a spinal base fatigue, supraspinal fatigue. But essentially what this does is due to this effect of, of metabolite accumulation, it actually downregulates your ability to then recruit motor unit, like muscle fibers. Okay. So you're just by virtue of doing high rep exercise and weight training, you're already building up this fatigue as it is your, your, your later sets, later exercises are going to be less effective as recruiting muscle fibers. Add into the mix that you've got a higher burden of these metabolites anyway, if you've got SIBO or dysbiosis, and that's just building on top of it. So you really need to be careful. You're not ca- causing these excess buildup. Another study, I don't know if you saw this one, Dave, but it actually- you ought to, just, just on that, just real quick, because just another thing for people to understand, like if you obviously, if you're struggling with that lactate clearance, and that's what we, we're saying with these types of issues, SIBO, LPS, negative gram bacteria, that that's going to be a, 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 a strong possibility that even like these individuals might actually um, uh, show up with like, you know, really bad DOMS, like delayed onset mm. muscle soreness. Now, I would generally say that these people could actually have like, you know, soreness that could last for days. And that's going to be an issue in, in the next bit we talk about as well. So we'll come back to the DOMS part. I don't know if you've seen this study, but they actually did a study in mice, in exercise in mice, and they had mice with different microbiomes, and some of them had no germs, and then some of them had, had, they were using probiotics and certain types of bacteria they were using. And they found that the, the mice that were absent in certain types of good bacteria had significantly higher levels of both lactate and ammonia from the exercise. So... This is like a compounding thing because now we're saying, you know what, bad bacteria is going to add to your burden and lack of good bacteria is going to add to your burden. And that's what dysbiosis is. It's lack of good bacteria and it's an overabundance of, you know, quote unquote, bad bacteria. And then when we've spoken about this before, even if you look at a particular blood marker like urea bun, which um, they use as a renal, like kidney sort of like marker. But your bacteria has a huge influence on that, okay, because you've got intestinal ammonia. Yeah. Uh, one of the worst culprits behind that is like generally negative gram bacteria. Yeah. So negative gram bacteria increases ammonia, uh, basically goes in the bloodstream. And to clear it, your body has to convert it to urea in the, in the liver. That puts a lot more pressure on the liver. And then it gets excreted by the kidneys and you put more pressure on the, the kidneys as well. And that's why a lot of time people are looking at their you know, maybe their urea levels and go, oh, I think I'm eating too much protein, but it could be just like the intestinal ammonia. Yeah. Uh, and, and that can also relate to SIBO as well, can't it? Exactly. Um, and that, that can be other, that can be other bacteria strains as well, streptococcus, micrococcus, and yeast and candida to a smaller extent, most of the time negative gram bacteria. And then you mentioned hydrogen before as well. And we'll, we'll conclude this sort of metabolite piece in a sec, because I know that, you know, we've gone pretty hard at it, but hydrogen... I'm sure you've all heard hydrogen dominant SIBO, hydrogen sulfide SIBO. So hydrogen, if someone's got something like SIBO dysbiosis, we know that 
any hydrogen is going to worsen those symptoms. Hydrogen is not bad, but it's going to worsen those symptoms. This is why even like, you know, dietary, say you were taking hydrochloric acid, that could potentially exacerbate some of these symptoms. And what exercise is doing is causing a buildup of hydrogen. And so there's studies that have shown that in people who, like in, in the process of exercising, it's causing this excessive amount of hydrogen. People who um, are more prone to digestive or gastrointestinal symptoms may experience a, a, a trigger in those symptoms, but the gut essentially tries to help regulate that. And so it's actually helping or trying to shift the microbiome to better facilitate the, the conversion, the elimination of hydrogen. And part of that is an upregulation short-chain fatty acid-producing organisms. Now, if you look at someone who's got SIBO and they've got high amounts of hydrogen anyway, and let's say they, you know, they're sensitive to FODMAPs, they can't eat a lot of these foods that are helping um, you know, promote short-chain short fatty acids. Now we've got this, this imbalance occurring where the gut can't really modulate itself to deal with this. And we've also got this excess burden of the hydrogen potentially exacerbating symptoms anyway. And so it can just be a trigger. And some, like I wouldn't say I see this all the time, but I certainly see it sometimes where people's digestive symptoms get worse around exercise after they train, they're more bloated and stuff like that. And, you know, potentially due to the effect on hydrogen. So, so in a nutshell, uh, I guess we sort of summarized so far, but I guess what we want to say here is what you shouldn't do and what you can do instead. So we've talked largely about it's high repetition work very short rest periods, which is going to cause this metabolite accrual. Um, very slow eccentric work. So we're talking, you know, five, six, seven, eight second eccentric work, lowering phases of the, of the repetition. So something I wouldn't want to do with a client like this would be something like GVT, German volume training, 10 sets of 10, mm -hmm. 60 seconds off. That to me, the idea like a, of that is to build like up- a 6, 12, 25 method. Oh, 6, 12, 25, <laughs> giant sets. You know, yeah. these are all methods, um, you know, heavy lights, pre-exhaust, post-exhaust. Post these are all methods I wouldn't want to use with not just, well, I mean, to be honest, not just with a client like this, but with anyone. Because it, well, well, at the end of the day, the fatigue factor is going to be big, isn't it? Yeah. And that's obviously, that, that's what it really comes down to. I'm sure we're going to touch on it more. Um, but is, is fatigue going to be more prevalent in someone who's got like IBS symptoms? Of course. Yeah, and obviously we would say that's a bullcrap terminology for we don't know what the hell you've got and we'd say a huge culprit behind that. It's not the only culprit no. would be something like SIBO. Um, and even if you look like, you know, it's 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 hard to find the direct data on it. And, and we were speaking about this. Like it's hard to find, you know, um, like, you know, dysbiosis and all that type of stuff, like um, being like, you know, one of the biggest culprits around central fatigue and all that type of stuff. Um, but you can definitely find information around acute inflammation. Yes. Okay. Being don't, don't, the... let's not jump the gun. We're going to go to acute inflammation. Okay. Next, okay? Yeah. So we've just said what we wouldn't do. Some alternatives that we think would be better would be, we know that there's going to be a steep increase in metabolite accrual above like eight to 10 repetitions. And so mm -hmm. what I would want to do is keep sets to below eight repetitions and we know that a lot of that metabolite accrual within the session is actually going to dissipate relatively quickly within a couple of minutes. So what I wouldn't want to do is short rest periods of less than a minute, minute and a half. I would want to have two, two and a half minutes, sometimes even longer. So simple takeaway is sets of below eight repetitions, two, two and a half minutes plus rest between sets. That would be a, a simple application there i mean obviously and you know i'm sure we touched on some of the there, there are certain types of methods that would be better geared towards where you're trying to minimize fatigue um you you, you, you know you still still the goal is muscle growth muscle gain even a strength aspect okay maybe things like you know neuromuscular performance and all this type of stuff there's certain types of like training ideologies that you can actually find literature on okay yeah. where they've actually shown and one of those is like cluster training where they've actually shown uh, it's not me saying that cluster training is necessarily um superior uh, i'm just saying if the goal is to still get muscle muscle growth um neuromuscular performance but minimize the, the amount of fatigue they have done research where they show that cluster set configuration 
may be better than even traditional set configuration around that goal. It's around not me fatigue. saying, yeah. <laughs> around the fatigue factor. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that, that also applies to, you know, like, I don't, I don't know if we're going to touch on it more, but rest pause method, and maybe we might touch on that a little bit more when we go into, do you want to talk about it now or? So let's talk uh, about inflammation. So yeah, acute inflammation, okay. I cut you off. Where are you going to go with that? Okay. So, I mean, obviously when it comes to like, when you've got dysbiosis, when you've got bacterial issues, once again, if I use the example of like negative gram bacteria, negative gram bacteria, the outer membrane, that's the LPS. It can expel anywhere to up to about 1 million to 3 million particles of, particles of LPS in your system. That's not going to be great when you've got translocation and hyperpermeability and all that type of stuff. Um, interesting enough, you'd like uh, people would perceive that things like antibiotics aren't that effective at breaking down LPS. They're very effective. Uh, it's not very effective at breaking, actually killing the bacteria cell. It's very effective breaking down the LPS. You just have more LPS. That's the issue. Uh, but LPS raises all these pro-inflammatory proteins. That's what it does. It raises like TNF alpha, interleukin six. I'm not saying these things are the devil. NF kappa B, interleukin one, TH17, interleukin seven. Like you name it, IFNY, it's raising it. Okay. okay. So, so what you said so far is. A big culprit behind dysbiosis, gut issues is negative gram bacteria. We know that the leading bacteria that makes up SIBO is Klebsiella E. coli, Pseudomonas, all negative gram bacteria. And you're saying these are releasing LPS, lipopolysaccharides, into our system. And we know that LPS is going to induce the release of inflammatory molecules. So that yes. you're going to be chronically inflamed if you've got these issues going on. If you look at, uh, once again, more data around LPS, well, LPS has been linked to osteophytes. Okay, so for people who don't know what osteophytes are, it's bone spurs. Yeah. Uh, LPS has been linked to uh, more inflammation where you've got high articular cartilage. So it can be your fingers, can be your wrists, can be the cervical spine. Well, LPS, uh, negative gram bacteria, definitely has a link to things like ankylosing spondylitis. Uh, and also people with LPS issues are more prone to discomfort in more complex joints. One of the most complex joints in the human body, the knees. Like, so it's just more inflammation. So we could go down that path. And even nerve so, inflammation and nerve pain, there's a, yeah, a big link there yeah. too. So we could go down that path where you go, well, how is that going to go for performance? And like, I mean, why Do your we... 30 million repetition, heavy <laughs> leg press, split squats, your knees yeah. and your IT band, everything is going to feel like it's going to explode out of your body. Uh, I mean, because that's like, you, you could say, like people go, oh, it's just because the, the person's not moving. And I'm not taking away from that. Like in yeah, terms blood of, flow, okay, maybe they need more yeah. synovial fluid, hyaluronic acid and all that type of stuff. But yeah. for those people, it, is it really like a synovial fluid, a hyaluronic acid issue? It's yeah. just the amount of inflammation that's actually taking place in the body. Well, even that's shown that one of the worst culprits behind persistent fatigue is low grade inflammation. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's low grade inflammation. That's not like the, the type of inflammation that you would be getting from, uh, you know, some like negative gram bacteria and like, uh, you know, bacterial metabolites and bacterial byproducts. Yeah. Which, because uh, most of the time, most people's issues is that they have multi layer bacterial issues or they have a lot of co infection. So the inflammatory load is going to be a lot higher than, yeah. I would say, low grade inflammation. So how does this affect exercise beyond joint pain and? nerve pain and stuff like that well wouldn't you say like the i mean obviously you know i know you've been putting out a lot of information around this the number one thing that is going to impact on what you're going to get out of the muscle fiber is going to be anything that compromises central fatigue just so people know what we're talking about we've talked about how cns fatigue can build up within the session what we're talking about more here is post session so you did a yes. session and now you're coming back into the gym and there's, there's a, another component of CNS fatigue, which can last for several days, depending on how severe it is. And what that's going to do is if that CNS fatigue is present, it's going to reduce your ability to recruit what are called high threshold motor units. These are the motor units that control the muscle fibers that have the most growth potential. So you're now no longer able to recruit the muscle fibers that are going to get bigger. It's like in between... Like when you train, your ability to manage that fatigue is going to enable you to maximize what you're going to get out of the muscle fiber to a certain extent. Yes, I think yeah, the management yeah. of fatigue is going to be probably the most important aspect there, but that probably comes to that the previous session. So not causing the things that are going to lead to that CNS yes. fatigue post-session. What appears to be the 
mechanism, I suppose, behind the type of CNS fatigue we're talking about here is essentially neural inflammation. So when there's this presence of some of these inflammatory molecules, and in the case of, of exercise and resistance training, what is usually the cause of that is muscle damage. And when there's damage to the muscular cell, that will cause an increase in some of these same compounds we've just talked about, stuff like interleukin-6. And then that's perceived, that that raise in these inflammatory molecules is perceived by the brain. It sees, okay, there's inflammation going on, and that reduces what's called central motor command. So basically, it's going to reduce the signal going to the muscles, therefore reduce the, the motor. And, and that's going to be a lot worse for someone with like SIBO, negative gram bacteria. It's going to be a lot worse. So we're saying that in the case of SIBO, they've got these inflammatory molecules, which seem to be what's causing CNS fatigue with exercise, they've got these molecules elevated all the time anyway. Yes. So there's always going to be this component of fatigue. Because there's, there's not much respite with that. Yeah. It's not like the negative gram back to you. I'll just take a break for a while. Yeah, I'll <laughs> give you an hour off while you go do your session. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, and they haven't even like, uh, they've, they've found in research, like, and this is pretty simple. They haven't even, they, they found like, even when it comes to like strength training, that mainly involves like, let's say like moderately heavy loads does not create as much fatigue as similar workouts utilizing yes. lighter loads. Yes. Yeah. So, so, so just before we say what to do and what not to do. So what, what we need to understand is if you've got these compounds that are going to be, I guess, circulating anyway, A, we want to try to reduce those. And that's the topic for another day because that's to do with dysbiosis and dealing with the dysbiosis and dealing with the inflammation. But B, what we certainly don't want to do is add to them. And so we don't want to be doing the types of exercise that are going to be increasing this further. And so the, the most, I guess, common or, or dominant or leading cause of this is going to be muscle damage. So what we don't want to be doing is causing excess muscle damage, causing more of these inflammatory molecules, causing more CNS fatigue than you've got anyway. So then the question is, well, what is it that's going to cause that? So muscle damage, and you know what? It's pretty similar to what we mentioned before. It's going to be very slow eccentric work. Below well, is it, is it, and, and haven't they shown it? So sorry to interrupt, but haven't they shown in research that central fatigue, central fatigue is more exacerbated by um, basically higher reps with shorter rest periods? Yeah, yes. Yeah, exactly. So what we said before, so high repetitions, especially taken to failure, short rest periods, very slow eccentric, you know, above five, eight seconds, et cetera. And then one, which I think is really interesting and controversial, and we're probably going to get a bit of backlash on here is lengthened exercises where the muscles in a lengthened position. And so imagine to yourself, uh, you know, a, a comparison here would be like a Romanian or stiff leg deadlift compared to a lying leg curl. Leg curl, that's more of a mid-range exercise there's no um you're not bent at the hip whereas in Romanian on stiff leg deadlift you're bending in the hips and you're you're stretching the, the the hammy and going into a full lengthened position and so when you're taking any exercise into a lengthened position there is more muscle damage that can occur now why that's a bit controversial to say is there's a whole lot of people who are in love with lengthened position work at the moment like it is taking social media by storm i don't know if you've seen this dave but it is like the next hot you, you, well you know me man. i try to keep my social media like intake to to the to the bed man. oh look it's a good idea i've had <laughs> i've had too many interactions about this topic lately um but and it's a topic for another day but you know i would argue that Gosh, you know, the idea behind the length in work is that you're maybe stimulating an additional form of hypertrophy called stretch-mediated hypertrophy. I would suggest that the literature doesn't support that for many muscles, but there's a hot debate on that at the moment. Um, but the point I'm making is, even if there was benefit to it, what's what's the saying? Is 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 a lemon worth a squeeze or the, the something? Do you know the saying I'm talking about? I don't know that saying, man. Uh, I'm sure you people got, you, listening. You, you got me on that one. Every, I'm sure everyone knows it. No one knows it. I don't know. Um, but <laughs> is it worth the pay, the trade off? The payoff? Oh gosh, I don't know any of these things. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> help me out, Dave. Come on, give me a saying. Um, essentially, we just want to know: is the cost in the muscle damage from doing that exercise going to be worth what potential benefit you're getting from it? 
And maybe for someone who doesn't have these issues going on, maybe the answer is yes. But if you've got these the the inflammation going on anyway, the highest susceptibility to CNS fatigue, I would argue it's probably not worth it that often. I wouldn't say don't do it at all, but I would say maybe we do all of our lengthened work in lower volumes one day a week, and then you take more rest days after that session so you can have longer to recover. And that's not, that's not even like us talking, I mean, we're probably not going to go down this path. That's not even us talking about the the impact that just having like dysbiosis and bacterial issues would have on your sleep. <laughs> Which is obviously a go, huge factor for recovery. Yeah. So then it's like sleep deprivation and like what impact is that having? Like next time you go to train. Um, and so obviously if you can manage that central fatigue within the actual workout itself, that would mean that if we're just talking about like trying to elicit results and getting the most you can out of the muscle fiber, it would seem that that is going to be uh, a more efficient way of doing it. Yeah. So as an application, what does that look like? Well, again, we said you'd want to keep repetitions on the lower end. So sub eight. Personally, I like keeping things sort of in the four to six repetition range, but um, let's go with sub eight for now. We don't want to do short rest periods, so we'd want to have longer than two, two and a half minutes, depending on the, on the individual. And, and once again, there is t- certain types of methods that sort of tick the box for this as well. Yeah. You know, obviously, we talked about cluster training. There's a rest-pause method and, you know, a rest-pause method for people who don't know. Like, I looked at some of the literature around this, and it actually sh- um, was shown to elicit. People say, well, it's not going to elicit the same amount of muscle growth and so but actually based on the research it was actually shown to uh, i'm not saying more superior but it was actually shown to elicit similar uh, benefits around your know, muscle growth um, but once again okay didn't uh, didn't it actually decrease like lactate response uh, yeah. you know minimize fatigue and so that's where it's better because that's what you're really trying to do okay especially if you've got these uh, gut issues going on okay that's what you want to try and do where the other things are uh, methodologies could be exacerbating that and making it worse. Yep. Yeah. Um, and there's obviously many ways of applying like a rest pause method. Obviously I don't want to talk in it, uh, turn into a rest pause method sort of podcast. Um, but you probably know uh, rest pause method a lot, lot better than me. I think there's three different ways of applying it. Um, but you know, it's sort of, it, it's, it's sort of based on the premises. So you might just try to aim for about 20 reps. You might be working about 70, 90% of your one rep max, probably go more towards the upper. Um, and then you, let's say, you know, your first set, you might hit six reps or seven reps, whatever that might be. You might rest, you know, they, I know a lot of the time they talk about, you know, 15, 30 seconds, but you you basically say that 15 seconds is going to be way yeah. too short. You might be going like 30 seconds plus on that. Um, and then you go again, maybe all up, that's going to take you, what, maybe 10 minutes. Yeah, not even. And so, and, and, and there's different ways of applying that. Some people talk about, you know, first set of 12 and then a four and, a, and there's ones that are a bit more similar to cluster and that's why cluster training and rest pause method are quite similar. Um, you know, there's other ways, like even like, we you know we've spoken about strongman training before and we're probably not going to go down that path, but obviously what's the negative around strongman training? You know me, I love it. But the negative around strongman training, is it really good for hypertrophy? No. Uh, but it is very good around managing like, uh, you know, things that are really going to cook out the central nervous system Yeah. because you take out the eccentric loading, you're taking out a lot of deceleration, acceleration forces, and it's also a lot of concentric movements. Yeah. So with the rest pause, like I agree, that is a method I use a lot with my clients and, and sometimes with myself as well. My issue with that is we still have the same concern. If you're taking the first set to 12 or, or above, there's still going to be a lot of the same um you know, calcium ions and, and hydrogen yeah. and, and a lot of these metabolic. Uh, but from my understanding, lactate response wasn't, you know, it, it was minimized. I, obviously, they were comparing that to multiple set. Yes. Sort of like yes. But I, I guess yeah. what I want to suggest is there's probably ways you could adjust it and make it better. And so, yeah. like, the way I would do it is I would still stick in that sort of, you know, six, seven, eight repetition window. And so, my first set of regress pause. I'm usually aiming for six or seven repetitions. And I'm going to take that. If it's close to six, I'll probably take it to no zero reps in reserve, like essentially to failure. 
And if it's closer to that seven or eight, then I might keep one rep in reserve because I would say eight is really the tipping point where there's going to be a significant difference beyond eight repetitions. So I do six or seven, and then I would wait longer than what they traditionally say. I would say about 30 to 40 seconds is going to be ideal to allow a little bit more clearance, especially with things like calcium ions. And then I would use that same load and I would go to failure or zero reps in reserve. And if I got, maybe I got seven in a first set, I might get four depending on the muscle in that second set, do it again, 40, 30, 40 seconds off, go again. And now maybe I'll get, I don't know, let's say two. And that would be it. You'd be done in about four or five minutes, um, but you will have got close to the same hypertrophy stimulation as you would if you did three straight sets, but you're going to get, I don't want to say less fatigue, but you're going to get less, um, you know, less metabolites, less damage. It's it's not going to be less fatiguing within the session, but in the context of what we're talking about after yeah. the session, it's going to have a bit of a benefit. Um, there's a guy named uh, Borgie, B-O-I-G-E. He came up with something called Myo Reps. What I've just described there is my take on Myo Reps, where I've adjusted it to go onto the the lower repetition side of things is slightly longer between sets. Um, but people who are interested might want to look up Borgie and look at his stuff on this. Now the other Borgie, Borgie that's a new one for me, man. Oh, you don't know Borgie. I'll definitely check him out. Um, yeah. So a lot of what we sort of base our methodology on is, is the idea behind maximally stimulating repetitions or mm -hmm. sometimes called maximally effective repetitions. So that was simultaneously made up by made up came up with conceptualized by chris beardsley but then also borgie came up with the maximally uh effective reps i believe or maybe i forget who came up with maximally stimulating maximally effective but interestingly within the same year one of them came up with one model and the other came up with the other and it was effectively the same thing and it was based on the force velocity relationship so they've both been heavily heavy influences on on me and i know chris beasley has been on on yourself as well so they're both worth looking into um there's something else i want to say in this bit here and i mentioned the length in muscle stuff and i want to tell you guys about a study which i think captures this super well i don't know if you know this study david it's done on on um on paralympic uh bench presses okay and what okay. they did is they did a five by five on the bench. Now, bear in mind, these, these are like internationally competitive athletes. So these guys are experienced at doing the bench. Okay. And why that matters is there's something called the repeated bout effect. Basically, the more you do something over and over, probably the less damaging it becomes. Okay. Now, these guys were good at this. And they did five by five with full ROM. A bench is a relatively lengthened position exercise, okay? And then they had other people do five by five with a partial starting at 90 degrees. And what's cool with this is the after the workout, they tested, I forget how long after the session, but they tested maximum isometric force. They did this before and after the session. Now, maximum isometric force is a good proxy for motor unit recruitment which is a good proxy for CNS fatigue. So we could in short say that they're measuring the impact of CNS fatigue. And in the group that did the partials, and I'm not sure what units this is measured in, so I'm just going to give you guys the absolute numbers. But the group that did the partials, before they did the five by five, their maximum isometric force was on average about 1,154 and afterwards, it went down to 1,119. That's not much of a change. It's not even, what, it's 10%, not even that. <laughs> the group that did the full, full ROM beforehand, on average, it was 1,244. And then afterwards, maximum isometric force went down to 771. It was almost half. Mm. So that's telling us the difference in CNS fatigue and motor unit recruitment in the group doing a lengthened biased position compared to a mid and shortened position. That's interesting. It's pretty significant. Hey. Yeah. So I've never come across that research before. So it's pretty cool. When I saw it, I was like, my goodness, this is amazing. Um, so that would suggest 
that using exercises that are potentially biasing the mid portion of uh, for that muscle. So let's say a again like a leg curl would be a good example. A lying leg curl or um, uh, what would be another example? Maybe like an overhead press to pins or from pins that would be causing less damage. What did you say? Pin press. Yeah, yeah. There's different names for yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, that would be causing less damage than doing a full range of motion where you're getting into a lengthened position. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, obviously it's going to be very, very different to, you know, like uh, what a lot of people are sort of like preaching at the moment, as you said. Um, but I mean, once again, it does come down to, you know, the data as well. Yeah. And you know what? We're in good company. Like go back and look at how a lot of people trained before the proliferation of, of anabolics and pins. You know, a lot of people are doing partials. A lot of people are doing isometrics. Mm. And you go back and you know a lot of people were doing like how long was Hepburn waiting between sets you know a lot of the the strongest biggest people on a planet before anabolics were being heavily circulated they were training in relatively similar ways as this mm. so i don't know people have a short memory you know I, you start telling people hey this could be a good idea and they say oh but no one trains like that it's like yeah well not anymore because everyone you're looking at is heavily enhanced but before that it was a bit different um, yep. If you guys are interested in seeing how some of these old school guys train, look up Anthony Dottillo. You know, this guy, he was writing, oh, geez, I don't know when he was writing. Oh, he actually had a method named after him, didn't he? Dottillo method. Well, yeah, he introduced, I, I think, a lot of this, like the pin pressing and benching from pins and squatting to pins and deadlifting off pins. And it was almost all partials. And this guy was a strong guy. So anyway getting on a side tangent there i think let's touch on one more aspect i don't know if anyone's still with us so just, i don't know but let's talk when about I, when i first, when i start talking about lactate they probably still yeah everyone everyone switched off in the first five minutes it's just been you and me since then but that's okay muscle damage i want to touch on one more aspect of that so if you are causing muscle damage obviously you need to repair that now, I'm assuming you're going to say the, the same thing here, Dave, but when we look at blood work, one of the biggest giveaways of, of like intestinal permeability or, or chronic intestinal damage is going to be in the white blood cells. And especially if we're seeing white blood cells flatlining across the board, neutrophil is very low. That's a really common presentation with gut issues. Now, it can be common with SIBO as well, but I'd say it's probably a little bit more what we'd associate with intestinal permeability and damage, yeah? Yeah. I mean, like, like obviously, we there's there's different types of damage, and obviously, yeah. I don't want to go further down that path, but it, it totally depends on the type of damage. But if, if I, for example, if I was picking up, like, you know, damage to intestinal stem cells, which I think we've spoken about in a natural podcast, then, you know, we might see things like, you know, the monocytes, the eosinophils and the basophils, they're more low end, probably, you know, more emphasis on the eosinophils being uh, a bit sure. of an issue around that. And if there's, obviously that means that you just don't have a good capacity to rejuvenate, replenish tissue homeostasis within the gut line. Yeah. So I'm assuming where you're going with this is, is that you've got that issue. How's that going to go for your ability to repair muscle tissue, tendons, ligaments, cartilage, I would say that's, you know, always the gut is the mothership. Uh, and so, you know, your, your, your gut is just like, it's just like muscle. And you've got epitheliomactin, you've got contractile proteins, and, um, even, you know, uh, a lot of the key amino acids that you require for things like gut-associated lymphoid tissue and things like cysteine and methionine and glutamine. If the area that has to assimilate these, you know, key amino acids that you need for obviously, you know, repair and rejuvenation of like, uh, like muscle tissue uh, is compromised, then I would imagine that that repair process is not going to be fantastic. Yeah. Exactly. That's, that's exactly what I was getting at. And, and in particular, I think neutrophils are important to focus on. Like we do know in the literature that neutrophils play an important role when it comes to muscle damage repair. Uh, like a, a really important role. We know neutrophils elevate very quickly after a training session. I believe within like one or two hours, we actually see an elevation. And, and then, yeah. and then obviously that you know that poses a, a sort of question around like because obviously neutrophils are really for their function. They really depend on vitamin C. I think we've talked about that. And 
you know, even like B9 and folate. So then you can sort of go down the sort of micronutrient sort of like realms. Yeah. Uh, and even like uh, um, you could go down the realms of uh, like even like certain types of minerals. I mean, even isn't like uh, things like, you know, uh, things like potassium is pretty essential for the synthesis of proteins that actually help with like tissue, re- uh, you know, regeneration and metabolic balance. And so what happens if I was looking at someone's bloods and they're a little bit more like hypercortisolemic or, you know, there's electrolyte imbalances there. I mean, I, 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 there's, you could obviously go down like a big rabbit hole with this. Yeah. So how much of an, how much of an impact would that have on yeah. the tissue regeneration all that type of stuff? It's going to have some impact. Yeah. yeah. And so it could take longer. Like what I would suspect, and, you know, this is speculation here, but if we know that neutrophils are part of mediating that inflammatory response, repairing that muscle damage, if someone's got low neutrophil activity, which we see most of the time with chronic gut issues, maybe that period of time that would have taken to repair and recover that muscle damage, maybe it goes from, I don't know, maybe it would have taken a day, maybe now it takes two days. You know, it just gets blown out. Uh, and, you know, again, we know that things that are going to cause most amount of muscle damage, things like length and position work, you know, there's a study on, uh, stretch induced muscle damage and showing how important neutrophils are in the in in repairing that and so do we then want to be causing stretch induced muscle damage if someone's got low neutrophils and i would suggest you probably don't want to do too much of that or we do need to give that person longer to recover they're going to come back in the next day even if they did a different muscle say they did you know upper body yesterday they come back in and do upper, uh, lower body today well, there's still that damage. It's still going to cause CNS fatigue. It's still going to downregulate the ability to recruit motor units in a lower body. So it's not even how long it takes you until you can train that muscle again. It's how long until you can train anything again. And so these people, not only do they need to be careful of not overdoing muscle damage with lengthened work, short rest periods, high repetitions, everything we've talked about so far, but they also may need a, I don't know what the word is here, like a, a wider split, I suppose, in terms of how often they're training. So they may not do well on a growth split, where they're in the gym five or six days a week and doing one muscle each day, annihilating it, causing muscle damage. Every other muscle is going to be negatively impacted for that whole week. So what I would suggest here as an alternative would be do full body every other day. You get a full 48 hours you're still doing a high frequency you're still hitting every muscle group every two days but you're never doing two days back to back you've always got that additional day of recovery it's not the only split you can do but it's one that i would say the majority of people is going to work very well you know one thing i just think i just thought of like actually when you were talking okay like if you're just talking about like almost like this sort of relationship and connection like just with the gut and how important the gut is just to other connected tissue areas in the body tendons ligaments muscle and that can actually be seen in like uh, prostaglandins i don't know if we've ever talked about this before i've seen like that stuff. before actually when we were talking yeah, yeah. about exercise induced um yeah because i like uh, like uh, prostaglandins like they're, they're really important for like aren't, aren't they like a mediator of like uh, muscle stem cells mm. basically means that they're like the building blocks for like muscle regeneration uh, my understanding, because obviously there's all these different prostaglandins, okay, like yeah. there's PG1, PG2, PG3. Now, prostaglandins are really important for the integrity of the epithelium. We talk yeah. about that. We talk about that all the time, and especially the current cell cells. Said, so. Yeah, so I would say like, um, you know, PG2 is the one that's actually really important for muscle stem cells. And guess what? Even things like, uh, so sort of what applies to the gut sort of is applying to your muscles here, where something like NSAIDs, okay, so you could say, oh, it's detrimental to the gut, but could it actually be pretty detrimental to muscle regeneration as well? And uh, I, I don't know if there's... Well, isn't there any research on NSAIDs? There's research on that, but it's sort of like, uh, it's, it's, it's sort of like a little bit murky there. Okay. okay. But also what I was actually thinking about is actually what people don't know. It's actually one of the most important, it's omega-6 actually, which is actually a precursor to prostaglandin, like, you know, they call it E2 or PGE2, is arachidonic acid. Mm-hmm. Now, arachidonic acid, AA, abbreviated, that gets a bit of a bad rap, but arachidonic, and why it gets a bad rap? Because everyone talks about brain inflammation and all that type of stuff. But I would say the bigger culprit behind the brain inflammation would be linoleic acid getting converted to arachidonic acid and mm-hmm. created that issue. But arachidonic acid, where do we get that from? Animal proteins. Mm. Yeah. So, uh, like, uh, my my point of bringing that up is that that 
there's a lot of things that obviously like apply to the, the to the gut that also are going to apply to other connective tissue areas. Yeah. So, you know, someone might be popping NSAIDs and go, well, it's not, it's not having really any impact on, you know, muscle growth and all that type of stuff, mm. but it is going to. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess you could go down a big rabbit hole with like all the micronutrients and yeah, and I stuff. think, you know, we spoke a little bit before we started recording about how we didn't particularly want to go down that route. Like there's, yeah. you know, it's a bit of murky waters um, and it is a whole viable conversation to have, but we thought there was enough to be said with, with what we've discussed so far. Well, the, 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 the spanner that I was going to throw in the works and I'll try and keep it as, 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 remember I said I was going to bring up something that was going to be a little bit different. Oh, yeah. And that, that was going to be around aerobic training. Like it's uh, it, probably good to, to actually something a little bit different. Um, and this is just food for thought. Uh, like, and this is more like, I'm, like what I'm talking about here is like steady state cardio, yeah. uh, you know, keeping your heart rate probably between about 130, 140 beats. I'm not talking about like 5K time trial, okay? Like we, you know, you're working mainly in the lactate and all that type of stuff. But um, there is some interesting stuff around, like, I'm sure you've probably seen this around like oxygen and like candida. Now, I wouldn't say it applies to all candida strains. But I'm just talking about some research that I've actually looked at where uh, adaptation to like oxygen, uh, like deprivation has actually increased like virulence factors with like candida albicans. Now, what I mean by that virulence factors is basically means now the candida albicans, what it can do is evade your immune system. Um, so it's just like, it's sort of like enhanced, like, you know, f- survival of the candida albicans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Now I'm not saying because it gets a bit murky with that. I'm not going to say all like you know you do more oxidation. Yeah, and, and yeah. It's a bit mixed with the research. Yeah. It's mixed mixed with the research, but you know also oxidation is really good to increase the NRF2 gene, um, and that's basically a mediator of like antioxidants, like you know during like inflammation basically. But uh, they have shown that aerobic training increases the NRF2 gene. Then there's some stuff around like you know detoxification all that type of stuff, but. They have actually looked at the NRF2 gene being sort of a therapeutic like a uh, target for alcoholic uh, liver disease, which means it might actually have some uh, benefits around metabolization of something like acetaldehyde in liver cells. Yeah. So I, I don't want to make this complicated. I'm just saying that there might potentially be some benefits in just like some steady state cardio. Well, this cardio. is why I actually use Wim Hof with clients, Wim Hof breath work, because mm-hmm. it presumably is going to have many of those same yeah, effects. oxygen therapy, but also just like just getting a bit of a sweat yeah. as well. Yeah. Like I'm not, once again, I'm not saying you have to get, do a marathon or anything like that. Getting a bit of a sweat, that could have some... Uh, as I said, it's a bit mixed. I'm not going to say it's clear cut, but that might have some benefits around some of like, uh, you know, acetaldehyde, candida and yeast, ethanol, all that type of stuff, which, uh, you know, a lot of people can be dealing with those fungal issues. But in those instances, I would suggest probably keeping it to a lower duration, half an hour, maybe 45 yeah, minutes yeah, yeah. tops. No, once again, I'm not saying like, yeah. you know, people just like to long runs like every single day. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm just saying like, just get a bit of a sweat. I mean, obviously there's other ways you can get a bit of a sweat up as well. It could be some bar infrared saunas or something like that. But yeah, that's just, uh, that was a spanner that I was going to throw in the works. <laughs> okay. Look, we should probably uh, wrap this one up. Is there anything yep. else we need to chuck in there? Or I mean, I think we're, you know, we're thinking about going further down with the micronutrient status and all that type of stuff. But I, I think that becomes a bit of a, yeah. bit of a rabbit hole. But uh, look, I think that the main thing is that with all the things that we talked about is what, what, what is sort of coming up as like a, a dominant solution. Yeah, And we would generally say the dominant solution would be, we really want to look after, minimize central fatigue, but yeah. what's still going to get good outcomes from neuromuscular and muscle growth. And obviously we've been focusing mainly on hypertrophy here. And that's really going to be, you know, lower rep ranges, longer rest periods. Uh, there's certain types of methodologies that sort of tick the box for that. Yeah. It doesn't always mean that it has to be a cluster cluster training or cluster set configuration doesn't always have to be a rest pause. We're just saying that they are some methods that, you know, you could even say like even some of it, like a Westside barbell, I wouldn't say full on Westside barbell, but maybe as simple as like a, you know, a five by four, a, a three by five or something like that. Okay. Can tick that box as well. Okay. There's other methodologies that. I mean, maybe they, this is the obligatory time that we say, look, we might do a part two on <laughs> techniques and methods that people can introduce and, and implement. Um, if anyone's interested in this in this topic, I don't know how yeah, much yeah. interest we'll get, but if, if people are keen, we certainly could talk more about different methods that we use. And, you know, there's a lot of them um, and there's a lot of, you know, rep and set schemes that I use and, and stuff like that we could talk about. So 
we might leave the one out there for you guys to give us some feedback on. But you'd say just a, just an initial straight sets you know, yes. where you're just abiding by that. That's the place to start. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, um, please let us know if you did find this episode interesting. Like I said, we might do a part two if enough people did find it interesting. And we will love you for always, forever, if you leave a review, um, if it's a positive one. If it's a super negative one, we probably won't love you forever, but we love it. We respect it. We respect it. Yeah. We'll take it on board. <laughs> Thank you guys, and tune in next time for our next episode. Thanks so much for listening, guys. As always, we hope this podcast was helpful. If you want to continue to connect with us, our social media profiles are linked in the show notes. And don't forget, the contents of this podcast are for educational purposes only. None of the information provided in a gut feeling is intended to treat, diagnose, or give medical advice. So please consult a healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle.